0: Tonight, why economists continue to blow their predictions about the economy, plus how to fight off streamflation. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. Y- you know, if you read the financial headlines every day, like we do, there's experts all the time saying this will happen, that'll happen. And a lot of times it makes people do something because of their advice. But I'll tell you what. I, well, first of all, this is Monday, so we want to talk about this with Allworth uh, Chief Investment Officer Andy Stout. Andy, the economists had a big miss last week with retail sales. It it, it almost makes weather forecasters look like they're batting a 1,000. What What's going on?
1: Well, economists aren't always... Perfect. And yes, the the old saying is that, you know, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look credible. So (laughs) when you think about it from that perspective, it's not too surprising, but there's been big misses this entire year. Before I I get into that retail sales number, which is another big miss, they've been missing GDP, which is our, our total economic output of the country. the entire year. So I I went back and I looked at the average uh, economist forecast and leading up to the beginning of the first quarter, second quarter, and third quarter this year. Uh, In November of last year, they expected negative growth in the first quarter. Yeah, we were going to have a
0: recession right off the bat. Yep.
1: We grew 2%. Yeah. In the second quarter, so that starts on April 1st, they expected Three days earlier on March 27th, negative 0.4% growth. Mm -hmm. So just three days before the quarter started, the estimate was negative growth. What would you do? We grew 2.4%. Third quarter on June 22nd, so eight days before the third quarter actually began, the economists were forecasting a negative 0.5% growth. Well, we don't know where we're going to be at yet, but they've now revised their tune higher to 1.5 percentage points. And the data that's come in so far, including last week's retail sales, shows the economy is on pretty firm footing, at least as of the data right now. There's risks out there. There's no question about that. Should we turn to
2: astrology for better insights, Andy?
1: You know... (laughs) I I don't think that would be a good idea either. I think really just focusing on the long runs, you know, your best guess uh, to go about things. But when we think about uh, last week in the retail sales, Steve, like you were asking me, the miss was the uh, expectation that economists were thinking we would see a, a monthly growth of 0.4% what ended up happening was we actually grew at 0.7% and when you look under the hood and I was looking at this industry by industry you know what we saw was online shopping soared 1.9% that was driven a lot by Amazon's prime day by the way yeah, restaurant yeah. sales were up 1.4% So shows consumers are still willing to go out there and that's kind of like a proxy for discretionary spending if you will so they're still going out there and those those two things alone—that uh, was responsible for almost 70% of the total monthly gain. So that was a, a, a big increase from those two areas. I mean, there, obviously there are things on the, you know, the other side of the, the ledger, if you will. Vehicle sales were down 0.3%, but you know, auto loans being rates where they're being at right now—that's not too too surprising. Uh, but when we think about this going forward, I mean, there's some other things to watch because you know, certainly there are risks. But yeah, the economists have been just. They, they've they been missing a lot lately, that's for sure. A little bit more than usual, seems like. Why
2: do you think they're getting it wrong more than usual at this point in time?
1: Yeah, so it's been an underestimation, right? Uh, and the economy is surprising to the upside. I think what they're looking to a lot is just the fact that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by you know, 5.25 percentage points uh, since uh, March of last year. So you know one year five months we've had one of the most aggressive rate hiking campaigns that makes borrowing more expensive and that should in theory slow down spending it hasn't really happened too, too much yet uh, i think they're also looking at leading economic indicators these are indicators that move with the broad economy move so it's not too surprising for them to be pessimistic given that these leading economic indicators have been signaling a slowdown for quite a long time. And we even got an update to the conference board's leading economic indicator. And that's what's followed probably uh, the most by the most people out there in the uh, the world of economics. And it's declined on a monthly month, month over month basis for 16 straight months now. The year over year change on these leading indicators is a negative seven and a half percent. That every other time we've seen anything remotely close to this. We've already been in a recession. So it's not too surprising. Economists are uh, coming in lower with lower forecasts. But What's really been the more surprising is that the economy continues to beat things. Uh, so when, when we put it all together, we see a strong job market, or strong enough at least, and that's supporting the consumer and yeah. that's supporting consumer spending. That's really been the wrinkle that's confused economists.
0: You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. And if it's Monday, we're talking to Andy Stout. Andy's the chief investment officer for Allworth Financial Managing, roughly $18 billion from right here in Cincinnati. Um, Andy, that's the economy. And the economy and the stock market are, and a lot of people um, don't realize this, but they're two separate issues. They're related, but they're separate. We've had good economic news, but three brutal weeks in in the stock market why have they been so bad over the past three weeks? And, and do you see this a continuing trend or or just a blip on on a uh, recovery to come?
1: No, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some more weakness in the near term. If you think about it from what I call a seasonality perspective, so the time of the year, this is generally the weakest time of the year up until about mid-October. Doesn't mean it's negative returns, but just on average, it's lower returns, lower positive returns. And this is also tend to be where you see the the larger declines they tend to coincide around October I mean you hear about Black Monday Black Friday yeah. Black I mean it's all in the same uh, calendar vicinity uh, so just from that perspective not too surprising because that does get into traders minds and they you know move things around because of that and that just moves the overall market uh, but in terms of you know, what we're looking at, what's causing it still comes down to a lot of uncertainty around the Federal Reserve, what they're going to be doing, especially in regards to inflation and how they're going to react to inflation. I mean, inflation pressures have certainly been easing. There's no question about it, uh, but they're still higher than where they want them to be. So the question becomes, what will the Fed actually do about it?
2: So let, let's talk about China for a minute here. The The average person listening might not know what's happening there. Can, bring us up to speed on what's going on and why it matters to our listeners.
1: Sure. So lots been happening in China over the past uh, week or two. And just to give you a relatively brief overview, if we look at all the economic data that's come in for the month of October, they've all, I mean, I, I looked at it every single report over the weekend, every single one fell short of what economists were looking for. Yeah. So definitely surprising on the downside uh, that includes their latest CPI or consumer inflation report that came in at negative 0.3%. So that's actually deflation. And you might be thinking, well, I'd love to see some deflation here. Well, you know, the last time we actually saw deflation 2008, 2008. Yeah, you don't want deflation. You don't want the de- deflation is a very, very bad thing. That's arguably uh, more, difficult to deal with than inflation. And also last week uh, on China's economic front, youth unemployment, they said they're not going to report that anymore. That's been something. <laughs> not because been the numbers are
0: great either. <laughs>
1: These oh, numbers no, the are too ugly, so you're not going to report yeah. them anymore. That's certainly yeah. an
2: interesting approach.
1: Yeah, the last report was twenty-one point three percent youth unemployment. So this is just too bad to show anymore. So yeah, we're just going to stop doing it. Certainly, that raises you know a bit of red flag. So that's the economic data. Uh, but outside of that, you know, there are other issues as well. We had uh, some issues from uh, uh, property developers come out last week, where Evergrande filed for bankruptcy protection on Friday. Country Garden. Uh, also a property developer in China, missed their scheduled interest payments. Uh, and lastly, one of uh, China's, what's called a shadow bank, Zhang uh, uh, they stopped, they missed some payments on some of their investment related products, uh, which actually resulted into some investors protesting outside of their buildings over the past uh, couple of weeks. Wow. But anyways, what you can see is you're seeing missed payments, you're seeing bankruptcy, uh, overall, this is uh, not a great sign for the Chinese economy. And that can have a ripple effect on the US, make no mistake about it. They are our third largest trading partner behind Mexico and Canada. Now, you know the reason this is going on in China, and China really hasn't done too much from a policy perspective to try to lift the economy, is that President uh, Xi Jinping is, wanting to shift away from the debt fueled growth model that its predecessors uh, have been using over the past couple of decades and as a result you're seeing some weakness here they're wanting to focus more on you know generating internal demand kind of like the us does not relying so much on the outside world and you do see them having success in, in areas like uh, you know clean energy electric vehicles. They're seeing growth in a lot of areas. Where they're not seeing growth, and it's pulling down the entire uh, economy to a degree, is the issues in the property sector.
2: Yeah. Do you think that approach is going to be a a positive for them in the long run, even if it is a little bit choppy in the meantime, to say the least?
1: It would be. The question is, can they suffer through, through the volatility to get there?
0: Well, they've got some serious problems, yeah. and it, I mean, it made front page of the Wall Street Journal uh, today on, on you know, deflation. And I think there's a question on, is this going to be ongoing deflation or was it a one-month aberration? We'll, we'll, we'll right. see about that. Hey, um, I, I do want to move on to the Federal Reserve, though. They're meeting at Jackson Hole this week, um, w- which I found out why Jackson Hole. Well, that's where Paul Volcker back in the 70s, when he was chairman of the Fed, loved to fly fish. So he said, let's get let's get the Fed together at my favorite fishing hole. But um, they're meeting at Jackson Hole. It's a pretty big deal. And they're going to set out policy for the next couple of months. Um, what are you expecting when Powell uh, makes his comments at the end of this week?
1: So Powell is uh, speaking on Friday. I don't know his fly fishing schedule. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure he'll try to uh, mix that in there. And thinking about what Powell's going to say. I think he will probably reinforce what I'll call a hawkish hold, meaning saying we're going to keep rates elevated because we want to keep fighting inflation. Now, th- what he might do is try to balance that by emphasizing that at least the Fed is near the end of its rate hiking campaign. Now, when we look at what's expected from the Federal Reserve, in terms of you know, what Wall Street expects, there's an 11% chance that the federal hike at its next meeting in September and about a 40% chance that they'll hike by November's meeting.
0: Okay, but still odds are against it. So that would be kind of good news. Great perspective as always from Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer at Allworth Financial. Here's the Allworth advice. Don't worry about what you read. The team to pay attention to are you and your qualified financial pro. Coming up next, a perfect example of why you should be maxing out your 401k if you can. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Hey, if you can't listen to Simply Money every night, very next day, you can get it on our podcast. Just go ahead and uh, search for Simply Money on the iHired app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, how you can set up your kids for success even before they turn 18. All right, Ruby, so we've talked about the Supreme Court denied the Biden administration's attempt to forgive a certain amount of student loan debt, but did you know they're doing it again?
2: Yeah, so this this is a little different. The, this time, it's, it's not a lot different. Well, these are people that have been paying for for twenty to twenty five years on I an income imagine. repayment plan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so twenty to twenty five years, and they're still sitting on debt, and they've been paying it just as they're supposed to. They they haven't missed anything. They're they're, they're being good. Borrowers continuing to pay and and the balance for some of them has even gone up because the interest rates are so high.
0: Well, I think what what the Biden administration, obviously, they weren't happy that they couldn't forgive uh, the student loan uh, debt forgiveness uh, program, according to the Supreme Court. So they're they're just trying a different aspect of it. I think this will be batted around by the Supreme Court also. And if it was knocked down the first time, I'm not sure why they think it's going to be held up and and. Be allowable on on this version, but you know that that's that's a guessing game. But these are people that borrowed a lot of money um, and applied for reduced repayment. Which if you've got a, a job that pays thirty five forty thousand and you've got hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. You're not going to be able to make the steep payments, so they've been paying very little into it, mm-hmm. and they've been doing it for 20 years. And and like you said, it may never get paid off at this pace.
2: Yeah. So what they're looking at is canceling 39 billion dollars worth of student debt for more than 800,000 borrowers. And again, these are people that have been paying for at least 20 to 25 years, depending on the repayment plan that they're in. Yeah. But yeah, you're correct. I mean, I don't see where this is going to go in the Supreme Court if it reaches the Supreme Court. But, you know, if if you're in that uh, category, 20 to 25 years of repayment, uh, you'll be getting
0: an email, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you still have the same email from 25 yeah, years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. If, if this applies to you. Now, if it was unconstitutional before, I'm not sure why it's yeah, and, not going to be and unconstitutional. And again, don't don't get it time. mixed
2: up. This isn't. This is different from the mass student debt cancellation yeah. that's been occupying headlines recently.
0: All right. So so the market has had a monster recovery this year, but you know it's interesting who made out the best. It wasn't the people jumping in and out and finding the right sectors to be in at the right time. Uh, the hundreds of thousands of people have 401ks and didn't mess with them. Seem to be the winners, according to Fidelity. Yeah, isn't that? That's the key there. That didn't mess amazing. with amazing. Didn't what we, try to time the market. What we say actually works. Yeah, didn't sometimes. make emotional knee-jerk
2: reactions yeah. and sell to cash when when things get spooky. Yeah. So th- this comes from a Fidelity announcement that the number of people with at least one million dollars in their four hundred one k's has grown about twenty
0: five percent. That's massive. I, I mean, yeah. that's that's crazy. Twenty five percent more. 401k millionaires. What I wonder is, did they have a million dollars before the downturn in <laughs> 22? Uh, it dropped to 900,000. Now they're back up over a million and, and they're considered new uh, 401k millionaires. I, I, I don't know. But, I you know, a, a million isn't what it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's almost to me, you really should target minimum a million dollars in your 401k because that's starting to generate when you do retire. You know at at four percent distribution that's forty thousand dollars a year you can pull out per year every year if you've got a million dollars.
2: Yeah and one of the reasons why we invest isn't just to to create uh, to chase gains in our portfolios right. and our accounts it's to keep up with inflation because about every 20 to 22 to 23 years is what it is the value of the dollar gets chopped in half. Yeah yeah that's a scary number so, yeah so having that money in your 401k is that much more important and this year's increase to retirement account millionaires, obviously, that's going to coincide with the S&P 500's uh, about 17% surge since January 1.
0: Yeah, say that again, 17% surge in the Standard & Poor's. I, I don't think a lot of people realize how much that is. I mean, that's a phenomenal year. And here we are just in in August. And we're already seeing those kinds of returns. Oh, okay, so if you want to target, whether it's a half a million dollars, million dollars, maybe $2 million, but if you're trying to grow that much in your 401k, how do you do it? <laughs> so this is the slow and steady long yeah. game. Is really
2: it's really no the secret. answer. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not... It's not trying to time the market. It's picking an asset allocation that you're comfortable with to the point where you're not going to sell when the markets go down. Yeah, get started
0: and get started young.
2: Yeah, so according to Fidelity, among the characteristics that distinguish 401k millionaires, it's really a high saving rate. So on average, the average savings is is 17%.
0: Yeah, and that's your money plus the employer's.
2: No, no, no. Employer contributions on top of that are, are another 9%. Nice. Yeah. So what Fidelity is sharing with this study is that the total savings rate is about twenty six percent.
0: Well, I, and most people aren't putting that much away. In all In all fairness, that's but true. But I'll, I'll tell you what: when I sit down with either the kids of someone I work with, or in my case, my own kids, when when they first got out of college, I you know I said, Hey, you want to get ahead in life? Get started. Get started young, and start by putting ten percent of your pay on your first real job into your 401k plus whatever the company match is. And I'll tell you, they both did it. And if you can do that when you're in your early 20s, it's mind boggling how quick this money grows, almost irregardless of how that money is invested. Yeah. And honestly, in this day and age, I would
2: probably edit those those recommendations and say 15%.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to be Pension, that much farther ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, pensions, uh, they're a thing of the past. So few yeah. people actually get them. So making sure that you're actually saving a lot for yourself is the key here. And then not trying to time the market. Yeah. Now, now keep in mind, the average age of the 401k millionaire is, is 59 years old. Yeah, it's, so th- it takes a while. Yeah, so this is from the span of your entire career, yeah. crushing a lot of money into your 401k, making sure that you're not letting yourself experience lifestyle creep, meaning when you get a raise. Increase your contributions.
0: Oh, that, that's the way to get there. I mean, if you're only putting 8 or 9%, you get a 2% raise, put it in there. Your take-home is the same, um, but now you've got more money working for you in your 401k. You might not like it right now, but you're going to really appreciate it down the road. And you, Usually, you're, you forget about it once you sign the paperwork to increase the contribution. Exactly. Here, here's the all-worth advice. If you put as much as you can into your 401k and just don't mess around with it, you too could become a 401k millionaire. Coming up next, why a review of your password habits is absolutely essential right now. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You know, we're told time and time again, we should have very unique passwords. They should all be different for different accounts. But be honest, are you really doing this? Well, our cybersecurity and tech expert, Dave Hatter, joins us to talk about password habits both good and bad Dave cybersecurity consultant at Intrust IT he's headed teams that have designed developed and deployed over 200 custom software solutions over all kinds of organizations Dave is always welcome to Simply Money tell me people are getting past the password of 1234 please
3: well first off thanks for having me guys and Sarah. sadly uh, sadly Steve no, people are still doing that sort of <laughs> thing every year Every year, you'll see the lists to come out of the 25 worst passwords or the 100 yeah. worst passwords or whatever. And, uh, you know, they continuously share that people still follow these bad password and, practices. And so,
0: so password of password is still a password with some people. Yeah.
3: Or password with, you know, at sign instead of A in it or, you know, zero <laughs> yeah. instead of yeah. O or something like that. And, you know, first off, the bad guys know this because, of course, every year these articles come out and this is based off data that's been picked up from breaches and so forth. So this isn't some nerd like me speculating, they're ingesting all of this data from breaches, the dark web, et cetera, and looking at people's passwords and saying, yeah, people unfortunately continue to underestimate the potential consequences of this. And as our entire society becomes digital, I mean, what can you not do online now? And increasingly, what are you forced to do online? So Mm -hmm. until we have a better mechanism than passwords, and things like biometrics and all that, I mean, it's out there, it's a real thing, but you know, it's all still somewhat uh, in its infancy and has its own set of problems at sure. this point. You know, We're still relying on passwords. And if you're using an easy to guess password, whether it's I guess it because I can look up information about you on social media and guess it, or it's easy to guess because it's on a list of bad things, or it's easily crackable because it's just not very complex... You're setting yourself up for disaster, especially if you don't encouple whatever password and credentials you're using for an account with multi-factor authentication. You're making it easy for the bad guys to steal your information and probably eventually steal your money.
2: So you're talking about technology and passwords. And and oftentimes when I'm creating a password, the the website will tell me whether or not what I'm typing is a strong or weak password. Should we trust in what that's telling us?
3: You know, assuming it's a reputable website, I would say yes. Like, for example, you know, if you're on Microsoft's website trying to create an account and they're telling you whether the password is strong or weak, yeah, you should trust that. But probably the bigger thing is, you know, I I know when I have these conversations with people, it's frustrating. You've got a never-ending stream of new passwords you need to create. It's It's hard hard to remember these things. It's frustrating. And also, the bad guys know that if people do come up with a, quote, strong password, and in today's best thinking, that's like at least 12 characters, a mixture of numbers and symbols, something ideally random. And I'm going to come back with some tips in a minute, but, you know, okay, if you come up with something and then you change it by one character for this site and one character by that site, the bad guys know this. Right. They they yeah. know people oh, do these things. There, there goes my and, strategy. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you probably studies, still write
2: yours write yours down in a post-it, Steve. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> studies consistently show this. So now this is kind of <laughs> ironic. LastPass, pass, who is one of them were well-known password managers, and until last year I would have recommended and used. Uh, you know, they were breached, and it's a, a big debacle, actually. So if you're using last password, I strongly recommend you find a new one. Um, Bitwarden one password, but a password manager can simplify this. And, and LastPass did a study and they put out a bunch of statistics and you know, here's some stats from their study. 62% of people use the same password with a variation. Um, 50% don't even change their password after some sort of breach. Uh, now, here's one good stat. 51% of people uh, are are uh, not trying to remember their passwords versus 44% previously. And again, this is just one study. So you take these yeah. what they're worth but the bottom line is, I know it's frustrating to get this advice. I know this is hard to do. And it's important, though, because, again, if I can get your, if you're using the same password on multiple accounts, like a work account and a personal account, if I can guess your personal account, password, hack it, break it, whatever, I can get into your work account, and now I can really create some havoc, you know, wow. might get you fired, might put you out of business. I, I know this is a pain, but it's it's serious stuff.
0: You're listening to Simply Money on 55 KRC. I'm Steve Sprovak, along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking with uh, tech expert Dave Hatter. And Dave, you brought up something that I've always questioned: these online services to help you consolidate and and see all of the passwords you've got to have at work and at home. I, I mean, to me, if okay, I'm having trouble remembering what my current password is on, you know, the dozen or so different platforms I'm going to use at any given time. It seems to me that if I go online and give all those passwords to one company, I don't see how that's reducing my risk. It it feels like I'm increasing my risk. Am I wrong?
3: Fortunately, yes, you are, but only in some cases. So let me explain. Um, for, you know, one way to get around the idea of using a password manager, which despite a bunch of breaches in the re- recent news, most experts still recommend, and I would agree, you're better off with a password manager, with a couple of exceptions. Okay. But the first thing is, you, if you don't want to use a password manager, use a passphrase, right? Now, you still would need a unique passphrase for every site, but come up with a phrase, ideally more than 12 characters, but something that's easy to remember and easy to type. As long as only you know it, it's easier than some random string of mumbo jumbo, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. But
3: with a password manager, you know, and you can do research. There are organizations like CNET, ZDNet, PC Magazine, Tom's Guide, where their editors and experts vet these things every year. So you don't have to just take old Doomsday Dave's word for it. There are experts out there who can guide you to the right tool. Right now, I would say, probably in my opinion, one password is the best password manager out there. But with a password manager right? If it's, if it's constructed correctly, you only need to know a master password. So you come up with a long phrase that only you would know. And the way these things work is it encrypts your passwords before they ever get sent to their servers. Ah. So even if they break in and steal the encrypted data from the server and assuming the password company is doing the right thing, they can't crack your password. I mean, I, I can't say can't. Very very difficult. Make like the sun may burn difficult. out. Yes, the sun yeah. will burn out before they'll crack that. Right. Assuming you have a strong master password. Um, but if you have a strong master password and you turn on multi-factor authentication for your password manager, and if you're using a password manager, that's a must, right? Because you made a point. If if I get your if I can break into your password manager, I got the keys to the kingdom. Yep. But it's as, but assuming the password manager is using the right technology to encrypt everything before they get it. Assuming you have a strong master password and MFA, you're going to be much more secure than the old password password we just talked about before, or any of the common stuff people do.
2: That That's great advice. Now, you know, to, to kind of tie it all together for, for our listeners, I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what are some of the worst things you can do for a password and, and some of the best things you can do for a password?
3: Well, anything that I could guess about you or remember bad guys, especially in like third world countries where they don't have jobs and money, but have internet access and time on their hands have an unlimited time and any money they can steal from you is a win, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they know people will use things like password with the A replaced with an ad sign. They know people will use their wife's name, their dog's name, their kid's name. If I can go to your Facebook page, figure out where you went to high school, you know, what's the mascot of your high school team? What's your favorite sports team, et cetera, right? In many cases, that information is publicly available about people because they post it out there. And then you're using anything like that or a variation of it for a password. Bad guys know this,
2: right? So maybe don't answer I, some of those uh, questionnaires online and on, on Facebook.
3: Don't answer those questionnaires online or or Conversely, don't use any form of that as any password for any account, especially if it's a sensitive account like your bank account. You know, the hardest passwords to crack are something that's completely random. And one of the benefits of a password manager is, let's say I wanted to set up a new account with Allworth, right, I got my financial account. With something like one password, when I go to create my account and it wants a new password, I can have it generate a password Literally up to 256 characters characters of random mumbo jumbo. Right. That is it, that is unbreakable. Yeah. Totally unbreakable. But I don't have to remember it because the password manager remembers it for me. I just need to know my master password, and have my MFA turned on.
0: Okay. So does it w- make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. So, so your your best tip: use a password manager. Is that?
3: Yes. They're, they're because, with
0: multi factor
3: authentication. Yes, yeah. with multi factor authentication, because then I can create a ridiculously strong, unique password for every account. I don't have to remember them. They're good password managers. It's all encrypted. I can use it on my phone, my tablet, my PC. So the passwords are with me wherever I need them, whenever I need them. And all I need is the one strong, unique master password in MFA.
0: Great advice. Just is, makes, great advice, like as always, from Dave Hatter. IT consultant, cybersecurity consultant at InTrust IT. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Orth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovak along with Steve Ruby. Hey, if you've got a financial question you'd like for us to answer, just hit that red button while you're listening to the show on the iHeart app. Record your question. It comes straight to us. Okay, Ruby. So there's inflation, shrinkflation, greedflation. I just heard a new one. It's called streamflation. And that's what we're going to talk about straight ahead. All right. So how would you like to set up your kids to succeed so that they don't have to go through what maybe you went through earlier in life and you can help them succeed? We're talking about Roth IRAs for kids. Yeah, this is a beautiful thing. I, I'm a
2: huge fan of Roth assets because it gives your opportunity. It gives the money an opportunity to grow
0: tax free. Yeah, but everybody thinks about Roth IRAs is something. Yeah, it's uh, I think you it's after tax or something like that. I'm not sure why it's a great deal. Everybody says it is. Maybe I'll do that when I'm 40 or 50 years old. Yeah, there's no age limit on these things. No, but there's some caveats here. So the custodial Roth IRA, there,
2: there is no age restriction on it. So so families can use them. To so help you can set it up for their head for your start. kid,
0: even if he's one or two years old.
2: Well, that's the key. They have to have earned income. That's that's the key here. That's the caveat I'm talking about. So okay.
0: I don't know many one or two-year-olds
2: with earned income, maybe maybe babies in commercials. Are, I know, right? Get a job already. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, th- this is more in line for, you know, a 14 or a 15-year-old, 16-year-old yeah. kid that that has a little high school job or a summer job and they're pulling in some earned income. The Head Start we're talking about here is a big one because they are not in a high tax bracket right, right. now. So right. they don't need a deduction that they get when they make a, a –
0: tri- Probably not paying anything in tax. Yeah.
2: So yeah. you don't need to contribute to a traditional IRA. You contribute to a Roth IRA. That
0: is a long runway for tax free All right. I, I know what I was like at 16. And the last thing in the world I was thinking about was putting money away for retirement. But, you know, here's here's the neat part of it. If you set up your a Roth IRA for your kid who's under 18, um, okay, um, they've got some earned income, but they don't want to spend the money. There's nothing that says you as a parent can't write the check to do the contribution into their Roth yep. IRA.
2: That is 100% correct, and that's yeah. the great thing about it. If you want to give your kids a head start... And they have earned income, then you can open the the Roth IRA for minors. You serve as the custodian. You make the contribution. Now the key here is to make sure that you don't over contribute because the limit is still sixty five hundred for your child. That's the max Roth IRA contribution, but it's also capped at earned income. Yeah, so, so you can't go above how much they
0: earn. And I think that's the key. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, first I had my paper route, then I had my really good grass cutting route. Then Mike Subs, which went on to become Jersey Mike's. And, and you know, I made a little bit of money, weighted tables in, in college and whatnot. Um, nobody was out there. Well, Roth, Roth IRAs didn't exist back then. But in theory, my parents could have written a check equal to what I showed as earned income. But, you know, if you don't declare your newspaper route money or, or your um, grass cutting money, that's not earned income. Yeah. So You have to to pay tax or you have to file a tax form to come up with an amount so that then you're eligible for a Roth.
2: Yes, so that is the key here. It it has to be earned income. Now, keep in mind, when you get started this early, there's a snowball effect of compounding interest on the money that goes into these accounts. And a snowball effect on tax-free gains is wonderful. I'm all about finding ways to poke Uncle Sam in the eye with a stick. And this is one of them.
0: Well, Fidelity um, ran their their accounts and and they said, "Yeah, we've got a few of these Roth IRAs and I've experienced this. I've got I've got people that I work with that that have set these up for their their kids." And the average custodial Roth IRA, in other words for someone under 18 years of age, they're 14 years old and the average balance is $2700. And that might not seem like a lot of money, but man, if you've got $2700 at 14, That money, if you use a rule of 72 and it doubles, you know, you get 7% on that money, which means it doubles every 10 years. That 27 becomes 5,400, which becomes 10,8. I mean, it compounds and snowballs quickly because you got started early. Not so much how much money you put away, but because you put something away or your parents put some money away when you were young.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and remember that your child doesn't actually control this account, the the custodian. until they're 18, yeah. Yeah, in this situation, you maintain the assets, you make the investment decisions. Once they reach the age of majority in their state, which is usually 18 to 21, that's when the account moves into their name and then they can do whatever they want with it. So that's something you got to be mindful of too.
0: Here's the all worth advice. Opening a Roth IRA for your kids can get them started early on their road to financial independence. Coming up next, how to fight against streamflation. Yep, streamflation. You're listening to 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. Okay, first there was shrinkflation. Then there was greedflation. Now streamflation. Explain what that is.
2: Average cost of watching a major ad-free, that's the key,
0: ad-free streaming service has gone up nearly 25% in about a year. Yeah, they're raising rates massively. On I it. hate it. Well, that oh, Netflix just raised their rates a bunch, and and they're trying to find where the breaking point is. I'm kind of there already. You don't even know how many you have I bet. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking
2: about <laughs> yeah. that. So th- these numbers, they came out from a Wall Street Journal analysis, and, and at this point, customers are either going to have to pay up or switch to a cheaper and more lucrative ad supported service. So if you want to keep these streaming services yeah. with no commercials, you got to pay more. And and what we were just talking about, I have an eight year old daughter at home. And, you know, there's something that she might want to watch and doesn't have access to it. And before I know it, now we have
0: a new streaming subscription
2: that my wife has started so that my daughter could watch something.
0: Do you want a screaming kid or are you willing to pay five bucks a month? Um, I mean, that's what it boils down to. Yeah. yeah,
2: And and, and that's the reality of the situation here. And honestly, I don't even know how many of them I have
1: (laughs) because of that. I know
2: the ones that I
0: have, but there's some that just kind of show up. Yeah. And now they're. Well, you said something that's kind of interesting because uh, what you said was okay, they're raising prices for ad free streaming, but it's a win win for the streaming services because if you say, nah, I'm not going to pay that, I'll take a few commercials. The streaming service actually makes more money on the, the commercial, commercial package, package mm-hmm. than if you pay more for not, no commercials.
2: I hate that, too. I know. <laughs> because we, we have to give them, you know, they're getting more money and we're the ones suffering through the commercials, even though we get to pay a little bit yes. less.
0: Yes. I, I don't know how we got there. I mean, well, a little bit over time, but I, I, I know when I was growing up, mortgage payment, car payment, a- and the only other payment every month was your telephone. And that was literally a buck or two a month. Now we've got very expensive cell phone packages and TV that used to be free until cable came along. Now has gotten expensive with cable and on top of that streaming services on whatever cable package you've got. This is serious money. Yeah. So how to spend less. So subscription options with commercials
2: we we brought up, they, they are a better deal, but there's also you know some credit card cash back offers. American yeah. Express card. I got to pay
0: more attention to those offers.
2: Yeah, you can yeah. take advantage of several of these offers. For example, it's four ninety nine for Peacock's Peacock subscription, and and you know they'll it, credit if, it
0: right back on American Express if you it, take them up on their deal.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um. One of them, Verizon recently started offering mobile phone customers a discount, um, combined with subscriptions for Netflix, Paramount Plus, and Showtime at twenty six bucks a month. If you did that separately, that's about $32. So there's there's
0: ways to kind of nickel and dime and save a little bit there. Good call. Hey, thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about why you should be compelled to review your insurance policies. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC, the talk station.